Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. The numbers will increase, but they will not increase, we hope, uh, uh, to catastrophic, further catastrophic proportions. We just don't know yet. Extent of heartbreaking losses becoming clearer in Maui fires. New evacuations as Canada's record wildfire season rages on. Plus, instead of exporting American jobs, we're creating American jobs, exporting American products. One year later, the Inflation Reduction Act is turbocharging a U.S. clean energy boom. All of those booms and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. This legislation they oppose or attack is now the greatest thing to come to their states. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, the very quiet lady from Georgia. Well, she's talked about what Biden's doing is what Roosevelt did, what Kennedy did. Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, more grim news out of Hawaii today, but at least the bad news is slowing down a bit. Uh, That's a good way of looking at it. As we go to air on Maui, Hawaii, the death toll has surpassed 110 and is still rising. Downed power lines are under new scrutiny as a potential ignition source. Amid massive mobilization of resources for search, recovery, and relief efforts, FEMA estimates it will take many years to rebuild the destroyed town of Lahaina at a cost upwards of $5.5 billion. Preliminary insurance industry estimates put total economic loss and damage from the fires as high as $10 billion. The Maui fires destroyed nearly 3,000 structures, the vast majority residential, worsening the pre-existing affordable housing crisis on the island. Survivors say they are already being approached by developers wanting to buy land where their homes once stood. You know, many, of course, think of Hawaii as a paradise, but the fact is, over the past 20 or so years, according to AP, Disasters like this, thanks in no small part to climate change, have sort of gone through the roof on Hawaii. Canada is also still grappling with a record wildfire season intensified by extreme heat and dryness. The government of the Northwest Territories declared a state of emergency this week due to multiple out-of-control wildfires that completely obliterated the rural town of Enterprise and now threaten the territorial capital of Yellowknife. There's no relief from the unprecedented heat that is intensifying the fires in Canada. Parts of British Columbia broke new all-time high records this week for the month of August, topping 106 degrees. Portland, Oregon this week also set a new all-time high August temperature record of 108 degrees. That's about 25 degrees hotter than normal. The last time Portland, Oregon was this hot was during a 1 in 10,000 year heat wave that hit two years ago. As the pace of costly climate change intensified extreme weather disasters accelerates, climate solutions are also gaining speed. Good. One year ago this week, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, the largest single climate investment in U.S. history after a long and very difficult struggle. Experts say the Inflation Reduction Act has already been a game changer for the clean energy sector in America, but experts say it has also spurred other countries to boost their climate investments to compete. 
compete. So not only a game changer here in the U.S., but a game changer around the world. Yes. However, a recent poll found most Americans are unaware of the law's profound impact. Seventy percent say that they've heard little or nothing at all about the Inflation Reduction Act since it was signed into law. The IRA invests $370 billion over 10 years to accelerate renewable energy projects, increase domestic clean energy manufacturing and electric vehicle manufacturing, and boost electrification, including the first major incentives for homeowners to transition away from polluting fossil fuels. According to new analyses, the climate law has spurred a factory-building frenzy in the U.S., more than $110 billion in new private sector clean energy manufacturing plants, including the nation's first solar panel recycling plant. Nearly 200,000 new jobs in the clean energy sector alone. That has spurred others, like the European Union and India, to boost investment in their own domestic clean tech industries. President Biden, in a tour of a wind energy plant in Milwaukee, Wisconsin this week, noted that all congressional Republicans voted against the Inflation Reduction Act as he highlighted the surge in clean energy jobs and U.S. manufacturing. We're investing in America. According to Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, my plan is leading to a boom, they call a boom in manufacturing and manufacturing investment, as you're seeing right here in this factory. A building boom, a manufacturing boom, a jobs boom, a clean energy boom. Sounds like a good idea to me. For much more on all of these booms and the ones we couldn't get to today, Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and site formerly known as Twitter at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report. By stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And I think it is something that's puzzling all of us is the push to the right and the the level of anxiety and fear that it reflects. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in Chicago. How these ancient issues of identity are playing out in a contemporary sense where they're exacerbated by the closeness of connections, ironically. Catherine Marshall has been leading important global initiatives around religion, peace, and development for decades. With those issues so prominent in the challenges and opportunities we're facing today, I'm really looking forward to hearing her perspectives on this week's show. Thank you for listening to State of Belief. To get these important conversations in front of more people who need to hear them, we've partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation podcast I want to make sure you are subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest, 
Catherine Marshall is Senior Fellow at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace and World Affairs and leads the center's work on religion and global development. She's also a professor of the practice of development, conflict and religion in the Walsh School of Foreign Service. Catherine serves as executive director of the World's Faith Development Dialogue and is a member of the Advisory Committee on Voluntary Foreign Aid at the U.S. Agency for International Development. She was a World Bank officer from 1971 to 2006, where she led the Faith and Ethics Initiative between 2000 and 2006. Take a bow, Catherine. That is amazing. You have done so much, and welcome to State of Belief. Thank you. And thank you for reminding me of my age. <laughs> listen, listen, I, I think you, you need to claim it. You have been amazing for so long and really looking at the intersection of religion with development, how religion plays into society as it develops. How did that start all those many years ago? And by the way, I'm for those of you who can't see uh Professor Marshall, she is a vision of loveliness, and uh, and there's it seems impossible that she's been doing it that long. But but tell us, like, what's the genesis of this interest of the intersection between religion and development and and peace? Well, it really started, Paul, with um, my interest, and I would really say, even though it's an overused word, my passion for dealing with injustice in the world and therefore development, which is about offering a better life for many people. And one piece of that, which I think is is an interesting chunk, is that when I joined the World Bank and started working on these issues, I was almost always the first woman doing exactly what I was doing. So that I was very familiar with uh, the barriers uh, that were around gender, around women's roles, which, frankly, even though things have changed, are still very important issues in the society that it's easy to forget with so many other issues. Religion is a somewhat different story. I was working in the World Bank at the time, actually, on the East Asia crisis when the very... Um, significant president, the, a very influential president, Jim Wolfenson, drafted me to help him to work on something he had started, which was to try to bridge the worlds of religion and development because the religious side was almost completely absent. And so he started with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Aga Khan and Cardinal Echegaray uh, and a number of other prominent leaders that he knew personally uh, started to bring them, try to bring them together. David Saperstein was part of that at a certain point. But to his surprise, and certainly to mine, essentially all hell broke loose when he started announcing this. Uh, and so instead at the of, World Bank, like pe people at, at the, the World, World Bank, Bank were just like, what are you doing bringing religion into our work? Is that is that it? Well, it like, it was even more at this point, the board, which was 184 member countries. And Wolfenson was always fond of saying it was 184 to zero, mm. which is a slight exaggeration. Um, and so I got involved in trying to understand 
much better where these objections came from. Uh, and from that learned a lot about the two sides, which was why the development community was so uneasy with religion, and then why the religious institutions were likewise very uneasy and very reluctant to get involved with the international yeah. development or yeah. This is so interesting. And I, I love that you started with gender because it's what you were looking at and, and because of your own gender, you were able to see the absence. People probably thought they were bringing together fairly representative tables. They just didn't have any women. And so you look around and say, well, okay, not particularly representative of half the population, right. but okay, so let's start talking about it. like, what does it mean to do development when you have a gender awareness and consciousness, which is a major contribution to development and then you do that work, and then you take another step about major influencers on the ground all around the world are religious communities who are already very concerned with how their people are doing, <laughs> and yet they're not at all, also not at all part of the conversation. And I just think that it's, it's worth naming that you saw the people who were not part of the conversation at a very big, very powerful um, economic organization and and brought them in, sometimes kicking and streaming on all sides. But actually, I think, is it fair to say that over the time that you were at the World Bank and to this date, there is more gender awareness and that there are more religious people participating in some way in the work of the World Bank? Absolutely. Um, and particularly... Uh, on the on the gender side, you won't find a development strategy paper or organization that doesn't basically mention that. Uh, and there, there's an interesting piece, which was that the research that was done that demonstrated the extraordinary benefits of um, girls' education that started to change the minds of some leading figures. But there's another dimension to this, which I found interesting in the two sort of efforts to broaden, to be more inclusive. When the issues of women's involvement started, um, what I found is that very few people approached this very rationally. Um, gender is a very emotional issue for people. Uh, and you can almost see the wheels turning. What about my mother, my girlfriend, my, um, and hopefully my daughter, because that's opened many people's minds. So it was a very emotional conversation at first until you started to get some evidence. And you have the same issue with religion, mm -hmm. that many people approach questions about what's religion got to do with it with their emotions uh, and with their personal stance right. rather than with the evidence. So this question of what is the evidence is a recurring theme yeah. of, you know, what do we really know? But the fact that the religious world is so unbelievably complex makes it even more difficult. And many people simply give up when they start to realize <laughs> how many different perspectives there are. Yeah, it becomes extremely complicated. But I, th I do think everyone has a personal experience about religion, therefore a stance around religion. And to let that dictate 
something like the World Bank or economic development around the world and not go to the facts about it. And I just remember like when you first started talking to me about this, and we've been friends for 20 years or so, and for instance, how healthcare is distributed in Africa. And that if you take the churches out of the equation, you're actually taking the healthcare uh, system out of the equation. Talk to me a little bit about what what is the re- reality on the ground around the world about the way religion does play out? And we, we certainly could spend a lot of time on the negative aspects, but there are some important aspects to mention that do coincide with the question of how do we make lives better around the world? Well, one of my sort of trite comments is that these, these questions involve everything from AIDS to zebras. In other words, there's not an issue um, that faces people with climate or peace or health or education or water or food, uh, just to mention a few, that doesn't involve um, religious communities in one way or another. Uh, So it's an extraordinarily wide range of issues. In many ways, the easiest and the first one has been health, um, partly because health has been so important recently, of course, with the COVID era Mm. uh, that Mm. we have just lived through. But uh, interestingly, in many ways, it was the HIV AIDS um, crisis that started to wake people up, both negatively and positively, that at the same time that you had, for example, even some churches that refused to bury people who died of of AIDS, but you also had the extraordinarily compassionate care of so many people in Catholic facilities and in communities. So you started to get um, a sense of, of how this complex world intersected with the world uh, uh-huh. of development. Yeah. Two other areas that are that are critically important are education. Uh, where it is both the uh, education that's that's provided by religious institutions, whether it's the Catholic Church or madrasas in Muslim communities, but also the way that religion is dealt with in public systems across the world, whether people emerge with a positive and constructive uh, idea about Uh, the plural society that they live in, the diverse society. And then the other, which we're looking at quite a lot in some of the work we're doing, uh, is uh, the question of social safety nets, or you can call it one of the mottos of these UN Sustainable Development Goals, which is leave no one behind, or the Catholic uh, idea of a preferential option for the poor in societies, governments, uh, efforts to deal with the most vulnerable, um, they often completely omit the religious world, even though both historically and even in the present, uh, they're critically important in providing some kind of a safety net uh, Mm -hmm. for those who are left behind by the society. One of your hats, which we didn't mention in your intro, was that you've been involved with the National Cathedral, and uh, I think we're on the board of directors for a time. Uh, and you have an, your own 
spiritual background. Could you say just a few words about like where where do you come from? Like what was your upbringing? How how did you get interested in religion? Well, I my current role um, really was the result of being drafted for reasons that no one ever explained, uh, and so I came to it with. Um, far less knowledge than many people who've been scholars all their lives. I was brought up very much as in an Episcopalian environment, though I think my grandmother was a, a Unitarian. Oh, uh, shocking, shocking. I think, I think quite active uh, in that sense. But I also went, and this is a sort of part of the complex journey we all have. I went to school in England because my father was living in Nigeria shortly after independence. And we took religion very seriously there, or I did. Um, I think we had prayers two, twice, even three times a day. Uh, we um, studied um, religion uh, for O-levels. Uh, so anyway, it was certainly very much on the agenda. But but interestingly, as a um, as a sort of integrated part of the of life. Uh, and I also did get some different perspectives. Um, two of my closest friends were Bertrand Russell's granddaughters. Hmm. Uh, and they came from an aggressively atheist mm -hmm. um, perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were people from other parts of the world, from Buddhist, um, et cetera. So uh, I think it was perhaps that background, the the diversity uh, that was there from the beginning that made it both fascinating and possible for me to come into what has now been two and a half decades of looking at life and, and development work and peace work and climate, often through a religious lens. Yeah. And talk to me a little bit about um, some of the places like that are case studies so that our listeners can really get a sense of what is the work that you actually do? I mean, I, that's a tough question because like everything, you know, it's not like I need proof of concept. I'm just wondering, like when you think about how religion development and peacemaking kind of intersect, are there stories that come to mind and people that come to mind that, that you think it would be worth lifting up so people have a, stronger sense of what that means on the ground? Let me start, I guess, with three things that have been on my on my life calendar for the last few weeks. Um, one of them is at the top, tip-top level, um, which is the G20. Uh, you were involved also, but this is now a 10-year effort to bring the religious wisdom, the best of religion, into the global agenda through the group of 20 leaders. And they will be meeting in India on the 9th of September, the, the world leaders. Uh, but just last week I was in Brazil because Brazil will be the host for the G20 for 2024. They take over on December 1st. So we were looking at what would be most interesting and relevant for 2024. And so clearly the Amazon and the rainforests and the roles that the interreligious interfaith groups like Religions for Peace are playing is vital. 
Um, we've looked for many years at, um, at uh, the trafficking issue um, where religious actors are very important, both labor trafficking, but also sex trafficking. Uh, we're looking at some of the issues around hate speech. Uh, we're looking at what comes after the COVID pandemic. Have, what lessons have we learned, uh, which again involve religious institutions, whether it's how you deliver messages or pandemic preparedness, how do you prepare and what are the inequities within health systems, the mm. unfairness? Mm. So that's one one thing is the G20. So yeah. that, that's been just so I'm, I'm curious. I know, because I think when I reached out to you, you were like, well, I'm in Brasilia. I was like, well, of course you are. You know, where else would you be? <laughs> you know, you couldn't possibly be actually in Washington, D.C. But I'm curious, like G20 has gone all kinds of places. It's hard for me not right now to think about Brazil and what happened in their last election um, that is very similar to what happened in, on January 6th here, where right. Bolsonaro supporters really took over. I mean, it was unbelievable to watch it in real time. You're kind of like, this, this is really happening again. How do local politics also affect this question of the G20 and religion? Because religion played into that, the Brazil politics as it does in this country. No, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the challenges is that the religious world is so complex. And we're trying to argue that the sort of essence of religion is concern for the most vulnerable. But of course, that wasn't the story and isn't the story necessarily in the United States or, or in Brazil or in India mm. or in any other. So I think we're trying always to see the positive mm -hmm. uh, and to navigate um, sort of a, a clear premise, which is religion is part of the problem, but it's also part of the solution. Yeah, well, that that's uh, like the thesis. When I think about Interfaith Alliance's work on democracy, I really believe that religion has a great deal to offer democracy preservation and participation and in so many different ways. But you also see religion being rallied in such a way in particular traditions in the Christian nationalist tradition that is allowing it to make excuses for violence when it doesn't like, right. you know, the re results. So the problem and the solution, I 100 percent believe that. Right. You know, there are there are plenty of of negatives here. Um, and I said that the majority, if not the all of the uh, country representatives at the World Bank were uneasy about religion. They saw religion as very political and basically divisive, but they also saw religious voices as being opposed to many of the changes in development of which I think gender roles, um, issues around sexuality, the nature of families are among the most explosive issues, a third rail. Uh, and it's extraordinary to me that even the word family and the word gender, people leave them out within a United Nations system setting um, because they are seen as as so so divisive and so dangerous. 
We'll take another break now and be back with more of this conversation with Catherine Marshall. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast. Please go to stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack. How is Minnesota on the front lines of healthcare reform? What gains has the state legislature made when it comes to busting dangerous corporate healthcare mergers and moving closer to Medicare for All? To find out, we spoke to Rose Roach, chair of Healthcare for All Minnesota and national coordinator for the labor campaign for single payer. She recently retired as the executive director of the Minnesota Nurses Association. Welcome back to Code WAC, Rose. Hospital mergers, there is all kinds of studies that show that what's going on with this mega merger frenzy um, and consolidation craziness inside of healthcare is not actually good for patients and it's not good for providers. There are studies that show that it increases costs, it doesn't decrease costs, and it ends up creating what we would call healthcare deserts as these big corporate healthcare companies decide where and how much services they're going to provide in any given community. And all of that is based on profit it is not based on the health needs of the community. We got to stop trying to use business strategies and start using healthcare strategies when it comes to fixing our healthcare system. Do you have a personal story you'd like to share about our WAC healthcare system? Contact us through our website at heal-ca.org. Find more Code WAC episodes on progressivevoices.com and on Nurse Talk Media. And make sure to subscribe to Code WAC wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, uplifting the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. I'm Brenda Gazar. Here's a clip from Tara Buster. Here, it gets worse. And nobody's listening to anybody else, and it's all dominated by anger. Nobody's listening. Why? I'm done listening to these people. All we do is listen to them. When do they listen to the normal people? Clearly, they they never listened. They didn't listen when we voted the con man out of office and said, we don't want this con man anymore squatting in our Oval Office despite receiving fewer votes and embarrassing us in front of the world like a goddamn orange parasite sucking on anything that's decent in this country, just swallowing it up. And it's a rapacious black hole of greed and need. Give me a break. We're not listening to each other. Tell me when a Republican listens to a Democrat. They can't even say the name of the Democratic Party. Which is now turning into hatred, one side against the other. It's not one side against the other. Why don't you tell the filthy fascists to calm down? Tell them on the fake news channels and the fascist right and the freaking Steve Bannon show 
the guy, you know, all the people that needed pardons who have these platforms to tell these morons that everybody's picking on them. We're not the ones out there calling for violence. We're not the ones shooting people for flying rainbow flags. Teach them, John Kasich. Go, go have a seminar. They don't know how to behave. Did Trump win the election? They're still talking about it. No, he lost because he's a loser. An embarrassment to humanity. We all know what you're voting for. You don't like brown people. You don't like others. You are a, a tiny, fragile little bigot of the basic bitch variety. And you are allowing a disgusting waste of human DNA con man to tickle those racist funny bones. And you'll you'll throw your own mother over a cliff. And you do, because you vote for your own demise all the time. Tara Buster is recorded live every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at the Tara Buster Facebook and YouTube channels. We stick together, we win. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in conversation today with Catherine Marshall, a leader at the intersection of religion, peace and development worldwide for half a century. Okay, so G20, what, what's another uh, example of the work that you are doing? Well, in many ways, the conversation, which goes under the label of sort of strategic religious engagement, where I think that an interesting avenue to explore is what's unstrategic. Uh, And one element that makes things unstrategic is how personal this focus is. So, you know, you can have different leaders of different organizations, whether it's USAID or the German government or UN agencies or the World Bank. And Clearly, for some leaders, they see this as critical. Others see it as not important at all. So you get very unstrategic approaches. Um, but in a, besides this sort of global uh, setting, uh, each country has a very different um, approach. And so a project that we're just starting that's supported by the Templeton Religion Trust took me to uh, Sri Lanka and Ghana. Um, in the last few weeks. And I've also been, we are also working in Senegal and the Philippines, but each of those countries are very different. Um, The one thing that we found in common that was very interesting to me is that education is a very central issue. And it does include how young people, children, young adults uh, learn about others and how they learn about what I think we all know from biology and everything else are the benefits of of diversity and even of competition uh, and the complex role that that um, history plays in education systems. So that was an issue, is an issue that echoes right across the board. One that's a bit more complex, which I was referring to before, is the um, social safety net idea. And there, I think you you see an interesting history 
through many, many centuries that charity was often seen as a religious duty, but more for the benefit of the giver than than the receiver, because you always had the notion, the poor shall always be with us. In other words, poverty mm. was inevitable, was maybe even the fault of the person, mm. but that the giver would benefit from giving it. So you have in Washington, D.C., where I live, you have an extraordinary range of church-provided soup kitchens. And when you look at what was done during the COVID pandemic, it's really quite remarkable how so many religious communities mobilized to support people who couldn't go out and mm. who railed against the moral outrage of uh, inequities in vaccination uh, and so forth. Uh, but in in much of the discussion about social protection, the religious aspect is, I think, seen purely as a modern charity rather than as being part of the solution mm. to how do you look at inequities in the world, the huge inequalities that the COVID pandemic, for example, made unmistakable. Mm. So I think that that is, um, and that's a central issue in development analysis and strategy. And I think forcing uh, a more robust discussion of what we do about that and the consequences is is a is a priority for me. Let me ask you uh, slightly, I don't know, it doesn't it's not actually a controversial question, but it's a little bit so obvious it needs to be said. What is introducing money into the kind of ecosystem of religious diversity in a country do? Like, it seems like everybody would love to have more money uh, to inject it within their system of um, their tradition or, or their leadership or things like that. And I, I'm wondering if some of the reluctance of people in the World Bank was, okay, if we include religion into this, are we, are we going to be engineering religion across the world? And, and, and maybe that's even a good thing, but I just am wondering how... How the, you know, you've worked with money, you know, the World Bank is a bank, you know, and it gives money. And so how does that, how have you felt about navigating those questions? Well, they're, they're definitely um, white water questions. Um, what does that mean? Very Frothy. turbulent. Yeah, turbulent. Uh, like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very turbulent and, and very uh, difficult ones. Uh, the interestingly, you say that the um, the sort of ministers of finance or the plan or the development people would be uneasy about seeing large amounts of money going to religious institutions, and the religious institutions have a somewhat different perspective, which is there's all that money out there. How can we get our share? Um, so that I think is is an issue. But you see more um, a loaded word that you hear quite often, which is instrumentalization, ah. which basically is the idea that people are just using religion without actually bringing the religious actors into the conversation. So you heard that a lot around the COVID pandemic, that yes, all of a sudden the WHO would be very enthusiastic about having, or the faiths for vaccines in the U.S. would be very enthusiastic about having religious actors um, deliver messages uh, that are the public health messages. 
um, but uh, had to learn or had to appreciate that you couldn't just send out a note and say, do this. You had to in, had to involve people. I think, though, that the money issue is, is much broader. Again, I've just come back from Sri Lanka and Ghana. And one thing I was struck by there uh, was an unease with NGOs, and that includes the religiously linked NGOs, that they seem to, to people there to have become more enamored with, with money rather than with sort of volunteer mm. service, mm. Uh, that they expect to be paid for mm. what they're doing, which is not unreasonable. Uh, most people want to be compensated for what they're, and have an, enough money to live on at least at a at a reasonable level. Uh, but this sense that the the NGO world or some of the religious world has become uh, so focused on money that that they expect to receive envelopes of cash even when they're uh -huh. a journalist at a press conference. Uh -huh. And the, a lot of unease around that. Yeah. Um, and uh, some nostalgia of the old guard for how wonderful things used to be when everybody just did it for love and uh, for for what they, of course, what that means is that it was elites that were doing it. Right, right. Who could afford, uh, who could afford it. But there's there was far more unease around that issue than I'd expected. Uh -huh. And a sense of the inequities and the injustices of the world. So it goes on in some places under the sort of decolonization term. Right. Uh, right. and that and the resentment that the people you know drive around in fancy cars and travel um without too much hassle and too much worry as opposed to the people who are really doing the work on the ground and who have an extraordinary amount of knowledge right you are uh someone who goes to a lot of conferences including the parliament of the world's religions which is um you know in chicago and uh what do you think is the benefit of going to big conferences like that? I mean, the G20 conference was not dissimilar. It wasn't exactly the same scope. But what do you, what do you think is the opportunities there? And, and what's a really good example of a kind of an international meeting that you, like, that you were like, that was the really good use of my four days? Uh, I have to say I'm quite schizophrenic about that. Uh -huh. um, that... I think that there's been far too much emphasis on meetings uh, that are really gatherings almost for the sake of gatherings. And of course, we all know that meeting people and hearing people and listening to people is very important. But sometimes when you go to meeting after meeting about peace <laughs> and the conflicts don't seem to get resolved, um, I think it raises a lot of questions. In the interfaith gathering, the ones that I've found in a way most interesting are the community of Sant'Egidio, ah. which has an annual, what they call a prayer for peace that moves to different places. It will be in Berlin this year in early September or mid-September. But what's interesting about that is, first of all, it's often a similar, if not the same group so that you really do have the sense that it builds on networks. Mm. And secondly, you have a long series of associated gatherings, 
many of which you never quite know about, but which are really dealing with the conflict in South Sudan or um, Bangladesh hosting the Rohingya uh, or some of the issues around Cote d'Ivoire, uh, um, some issues around Latin America. Um, so it is a meeting where the real actors are present. Mm. And so you have the conversation about the ideas and sort of the almost the slogans, but at the same time you have um, things going on. And of, obviously that's the idea behind all of these meetings, right. that they're sort of shaping what we can call the conversation, but at the same time testing it and pushing it with the realities. Yeah. You've been, I would say, largely focused on international work. Is that fair to say? You know, yes. And I'm president of a domestic uh, organization. What lessons should I be learning from the work that you are doing? Because the United States, you know, whatever you, you know, we are, we are different than South Sudan, uh, obviously, but we have our own you know, challenges. What are the things that I should be as a, you know, as someone who leads a interfaith advocacy organization, what are some lessons I should be learning from, from all of the work that you've been doing and what you've been seeing around the world? Well, first I would love to see you more involved in the international world, because I think you have so much to offer from your experience, um, including some of these very critical issues around communication. I mean, yeah. how and how that is being transformed in the age of social media and the right. age of AI and all of these others. So we need you. The other thing that's interesting about today is that the barriers between domestic and international, whether it's for students or for people in health profession or education, are really eroding. Mm. And the the there are tremendous similarities uh, among um, the different communities. So that's interesting. We obviously we obviously know that each country and each city, um, each family, <laughs> is different in its own way. Uh, but still, there are a lot of real common themes, uh, including you know what is the impact of inequality? What does that do to societies? And how do we how do we build the kind of democratic structures? I mean, one of the interesting issues that I think comes up everywhere is, is the problem with security. Um, a number of polls are showing that if people are asked what's important, being safe may be number one. Hmm. Uh, and that's true in Venezuela uh, and Guatemala, and it's true in New York and Washington. Uh, yeah. How do you balance these different priorities? And and I think we're also living through so many revolutions, right? Whether it's in education or healthcare and urbanization, with half the world now living in cities, more than half the world, that these are these are right across the world, and uh, you can't you can't draw lines. We we know that you can't live behind walls. Uh -huh. uh, you have to be able to cross and to understand others uh, and the way they see the world. Given the, um, the 
immigration from other places of the world to the United States, conflicts in other places um, do have implications in the United States, whether that's um, what's happening in India or Israel-Palestine or other communities that we, you know, might go a little bit more under the radar. Like these kind of, they don't, not all of that is left behind. I mean, I and, and in my own family, that's not a recent thing. You know, my own family comes from Germany. World War I mm-hmm. comes. And, you know, what was happening in Europe was very much affecting how my family was perceived during that time. So, so it is like, you know, that's really important. And, you know, I, I do think like around the world, we have this, um, and I don't know what it is. I don't know what is prompting it. And maybe you'll have the answer to that. We do have these movements that go are described as populist movements that are um, taking over major countries which has, you know, implications for democracy and, you know, how how we're interacting across uh, across divides. And they often are supported by religious sensibilities. Right. I mean, no, you're absolutely right. And 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 I think it is something that's puzzling all of us is the push to the right and the um, the level of anxiety and fear that it reflects and sort of how these ancient issues of identity are playing out in a contemporary sense where they're exacerbated by the closeness of connections, ironically, mm. that people can sort of know instantly, You can we know instantly what's happening in Hawaii, which is a long way away from where we are. And that shapes who we are in relation to others. And then for for at least for elites, we're dealing with these multiple identities where, um, I mean, we're one of the questions that we are asking ourselves is how important is religion to you? And, you know, there are these measures of religiosity. So what does religiosity mean? And to some extent, it's on a scale of one to 10. How important is your religion to you? But I think you also need to look at that in relation to uh, your gender, uh, in relation to your wealth, class issues, um, the ethnic side of it, uh, um, your profession, mm-hmm. how you how you organize your your worldview, um, your what you take in, what 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 fo- issues do you focus on? All of those come into this complex picture. Um, but I think the the populism, I, I don't have any of those answers. I wouldn't even dare to venture them. But clearly this this fear of of being done better by somebody else or um, losing, missing out or feeling unappreciated. I know at one point when we were looking at issues around the Muslim world, um, the concern that came out in so many polls was that people didn't feel respected. Mm. The issue of respect uh, seemed to come at the top. And a lot of people use the word dignity now as as a sort of common theme. It makes me a little bit uneasy because dignity comes a little too close to me for to pride, for me to pride, but but still this fundamental issue of dignity um, and respect uh, and 
being listened to and being understood in the negative, I think that's a, a big part of what's happening, that people just feel that they're they're being left at the margins uh, while others are forging ahead. Yeah. Well, and they all, I think in, in the po- po- populist moment, it's like in this country anyway, it can it can be white people who are who have, you know, some sense of like a, a culture, a nation built around their identity, which now feels like it's be, being built or they at least around a broadening sense of identity. Right. And um, and that, you know, for some of us, that's welcome and, and feels enriching and all of that. And for others, that feels incredibly intimidating. And I think, right. you know, part of that is hopefully being able to ex- explain why that's a good thing for every community. And, and, and I'm not sure that we're doing such a good job of uh, explaining how that's true, but it, it certainly is true. You teach in the foreign service area of um, Georgetown. What's one thing that you want everybody who graduates from the foreign service school to really appreciate about the role of religion in the world? We talk a lot about religious literacy, but the definitions of what that means and how you do that is one of those things that's easier said than done. Um, I teach a course for the graduate students uh, in the who are interested in development on ethics. And to me, the primary thing is to be able to appreciate that there are very different ways of looking at the world. There are very different, we could call it worldviews or um, whatever. Uh, And it's quite easy to get caught in your own boxes, whether it's an economic um, set of assumptions or whether it is as an engineer or whatever it is. And because I'm so conscious, even more so, from my decades of working on the questions around religion, uh, I'm so conscious that there are very different ways of taking in facts and analyzing them and coming to conclusions. I think that if you're going to work in development, you have to be have your antenna very keenly focused on, um, on these differences and be able to hear them and to understand them as well as to assess whether whether they matter. So I think that that um, and the religion, um, the religious topic is very much a part of that. There are so many people in the world for whom their religious teachings, whether it comes as stories or rituals or relationships with people, that are shaped by, even unconsciously, by the religious side, that if you don't understand that, you're going to have a very difficult time in appreciating how a community behaves, what they get angry about, and what their dreams are. Mm, I think that says it so well. I you you use the word antenna, and I just think like, just having that awareness that that's something you should be on the lookout for, be curious about, um, be aware of as you go into new settings. And that's actually a lesson for all of us at all times, but especially when you're trying to represent either the United States government or NGO, um, just being recognized that's part of your job is to be aware 
of that difference. You know, one of the things Absolutely. I like, one of the things I like to ask um, everyone is, is what gives you hope right now? Person, places, things, ideas, experiences, what gives you hope? Well, I take from Madeleine Albright um, something she said quite often, which is that she's an optimist who worries a lot. Um, so <laughs> I do think that first, um, the, I'm a chronic optimist, uh, tend to see that, but with, with that experience and seeing the, the worst of things being there alongside it. Uh, but I think what gives me hope most is how the world is changing. And it is something that we've forgotten, these dramatic increases in the number of people who have had some kind of formal education in the improved health uh, of people, the sharp drops in infant and child mortality. And the fact that we have, what, 20 extra years of life uh, on average. I mean, if we can do that, if we, and we've seen so many people who've moved from real destitution, extreme poverty to being able to, to navigate and to, uh, to move into lives where they have more choice I think that's such an extraordinary achievement that we we forget too easily and we need to take from that that the impossible may take a little longer but it can be done. Wow. I love that. Catherine Marshall is a veteran of the World Bank and is currently a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace and World Affairs. A professor at the Walsh School of Foreign Service. Catherine serves as the executive director of the World Faiths Development Dialogue. Catherine Marshall, thank you so much for being with us here on State of Belief. Well, thank you, Paul Rauschenbusch. It's a joy to see you and to, to have a, a conversation. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping State of Belief going. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today, information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part, both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at stateofbelief.com and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. My guest will be Reverend Jennifer Butler, founder of Faith in Public Life and author of Who Stole My Bible? 
reclaiming scripture as a handbook for resisting tyranny. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.